Welcome, everyone. You're listening to This is Hockey Culture, an SB Nation podcast where we break down the most pressing news circulating the NHL by examining the intersections of politics, identity, sports, and culture in order to define what makes hockey, hockey. I'm Kat Petre. And I'm Sam Siciliano. And this is Hockey Culture. Welcome back, everyone. It's your favorite hockey girls, Sam and Kat here. And I know I can speak for both of us when I say we are so happy to be back and continuing conversations about hockey and its culture. So in today's episode, we're going to be talking about CTE and we'll be reflecting on the way the league has handled illegal contact in general. Flu foots, knee on knees and head injuries have already become far too common in this season already. And since NHL player safety has so far proven to be both inconsistent and untrustworthy, and how they evaluate and penalize players, combined with the fact that the NHL is severely lacking in health and safety protections for both current and retired players, conversations around CTE are especially important for us to have. I do want to issue a, a content warning for this episode before we get started. This episode will involve light discussions of suicide, depression, and anxiety. And if those are subjects that you do not feel prepared to listen to today, Click out of this episode. We have tons of great episodes on the This Is Hockey Culture podcast for you to listen to that may be a little bit more suited to your taste for today. So before we dive into what illegal hits and illegal contact has looked like throughout the 2022 season, I want to touch on the Department of Player Safety. So it's June 2011, and the Department of Player Safety is born much to Brendan Shanahan's credit. The department itself was built off Rule 48, implemented in the 2011-12 season. And under Rule 48, targeted head hits from any direction on the ice will be subject to a two-minute minor penalty. Before its update in 2011, Rule 48 provided that on-ice officials had the ability to call a major penalty for any targeted head hit from the lateral or blind side. So it was rewritten to exclude words like lateral and blind side, And the major penalty provision was replaced by the minor penalty provision, which I personally think that's a little bit interesting because we're talking about head contact and illegal head contact. So Brendan Shanahan was quoted, anywhere on the ice coming from any direction, you target the head and make it a principal point of contact. You will be subject to a two-minute penalty on the ice for Rule 48. You'll also be, as with all two-minute penalties or non-calls, subject to supplementary discipline. So it's been 10 years since both Rule 48 as well as Rule 41 that has to do with boarding have been implemented and updated. Shanahan was actually quoted this year saying, if you're a great player with great timing, you could still deliver great hits, but targeting the head was something that people wanted out of the game, end quote. And so it sounds like player safety is talking about all of the really hard work that they've done in the last 10 years or so between the 2011 and 2012 season and 2021-22, there have only been 80 suspensions for hits violating Rule 48. And might I add, that includes preseason, regular season, and playoff games. 80 in 10 years? Like, I don't know. Like, that doesn't really feel like a lot. And I mean, I think you could look at it in two ways. In one way having a more defined and accountable set of rules has led to a clear understanding of what is and isn't acceptable and has led to suspensions. 
But I kind of feel like player safety like gases themselves up about like how much they've done to protect players in the last 10 years since this rule adjustment and update. And I feel like they'd maybe need to redirect that energy because honestly, from the 2010 to 2022 season, or excuse me, actually it was the 2020 season, here are the teams with the most minor penalties for checks to the head. Okay. In the last 10 years. So the senators leading the boys off with 34. Wow. Okay. The Bruins with 33 and the lightning with 26. And so I'm sure those numbers definitely look different than they would have, you know, 15 years ago, but I don't feel like we're doing like a lot. Like it's not, not, not feeling blue ribbon worthy for me. I don't know how you feel about that, but I'm right there with you. I mean, I feel like just in the past week, I can think of maybe 10 hits that involved head contact, like regardless of whether or not it was incidental. So just to see 80, I'm with you. That seems extremely, extremely low. And I think we could have a whole conversation also about refereeing because this starts on the ice, right? You can have a rule in the rule book, but how often are games not being called mm-hmm. quite right to the rule book, right? Isn't It's like the third cross check is the one that gets called when it should really be the first one. Right. And so it's a lot of times what's being managed in the game and what's being called in the game. And I think a lot of referees and linesmen just aren't calling head contact when they see it. And of course they can't see everything, but you can see more than you think. Yeah, so, you know I used to ref and that. I, I know you used to ref. This is a great point. I feel about this. Yeah, <laughs> you know how strongly I feel about the refs not seeing things. I mean, I get it. You're not going to see everything, but I think this is a good transition here because I kind of want to talk about some of the illegal hits that have happened, honestly, just here in the first month of 2022, because it's a pretty big list. Mm -hmm. So I will say these aren't the only hits that have happened in the month of January. So I do think that's important to say, but these are the ones that stood out to me the most. And I think considering, I don't know, we're only three weeks into the year. It's a little bit a lot for me, it feels like. And it doesn't feel like these illegal checks, especially illegal checks to the head, They don't feel like they're getting better. If anything, I feel like we're hearing more about them and they're becoming more consistent. So let's start with January 2nd. Panthers forward Sam Bennett, who is a repeated offender, might I add, is suspended for three games for an illegal check to the head on Canadians forward Cedric Paquette. So proud of myself, right? Got that one the first time. Perfect. You could see Kat's face. She's so proud of me. January 14th, Islanders Ross Johnson is suspended for three games for a check to the head on Devils A.J. Greer. January 20th, Garnett Hathaway is called for interference and absolutely buried Brad Marchand in the corner with a hit from behind. Ended up resulting in a Marchand upper body injury. January 23rd, Teddy Bluger is struck by Brendan Dillon, who followed through making shoulder-to-head contact, left Bluger bloodied off the ice, I personally, rewatching it in slow motion, do feel like Dylan left his feet a bit. I want to say a couple of inches now. Granted, this literally happened today. So we will, you know, come to find out. But I'm going to kind of be interested to see how that played out, considering no penalty was called. Hmm, interesting. Although the blood was cleaned up for quite quite a minute. So okay. that, that was one for the books. And I think a lot of frustration, whether it comes from fan base or players, or I mean, I'm sure even like in some ways sponsors, like this does affect business, right? Comes from not having an understanding of 
the rhyme or reason behind what does get a suspension, what doesn't get a suspension, the lengths of the suspension, but also with the lack of calls on dangerous illegal contact type hits, because I think in the last two seasons alone, I don't know if COVID's got everyone ramped up and everyone's frustrated or what, but I do feel like illegal contact has been maybe a little worse. Even I would push to say, I don't think it's been better. I don't think it's getting better personally. I feel like illegal contact, the fighting, it's been worse. I agree with you. And I think one of the things that so strikes me sitting up in the Sharks press box is whenever you see a player going down the tunnel, specifically for concussion protocol, because you can tell when somebody has been rocked on the ice and they head down that tunnel. It's it's not a good feeling because you know at the end of the day, that is a person, right? And I will preach this all day, every day. These players exist outside of our stats sheets and our TV screens as people. And that's why it's so important to have these sorts of conversations about health and safety procedures and player protections, because it is just a person. Yes, they are doing their job, but they need to be adequately protected from Mm -hmm. the dangers of it. And even just this past year, I can think of a couple of players like Alex Barabanov, who's had a lot of head contact and head hits just in this season, just in this past, honestly, past couple of weeks. He's a player who, whether or not, you know, they're a heads up skater or just in the transition game, he's a kind of player who gets rocked a lot. And so I've seen a lot of hits on him. Redeem Shimmick is kind of the same way. And mm-hmm. when you're dealing also with fringe players who are fighting to stay in the lineup, who adopt this sort of like dropping the mitts mentality as a way to both get their team going right, it's an energizer, but also as a way to sort of endear themselves to the team and the coaching staff and kind of add this into their personality as a way to stay up in the lineup, you're adding on another level of inviting head contact. So I think of Jonah Gadjevich, Jake Middleton, who is incidentally out right now with a concussion from a hit. And he's been really struggling with that. He's just now turning a corner. We heard from head coach Bob Bubner just a couple of days ago, but he's been out for a while. And this is exactly what we're talking about. Jeff Fiel, who is up from the Barracuda, has also been fighting in every single game he's appeared in thus far, given one game. You don't think he fought last game, but that's huge, right? When you're also taking these big hits on the ice, but also now you're fist fighting the corner. And please do not misunderstand me when I say we're not talking about this as a way to take out hits in hockey. We're also Mm -hmm. not even talking about taking out fighting in hockey. That's not the conversation. It's really about How can we make those situations that are so central to the experience of playing hockey? How can we make them safer? Because we can. And how do these affect players off the ice? And that's where the sort of larger conversation of CTE and CTE protections is going to come in as we get to that later in the episode. So in 2017, the Journal of the American Medical Association published a groundbreaking research article revealing that 110 of 111 former NFLers examined at the VA Boston healthcare system have been diagnosed, and stay with me here, I'm going to do my best, chronic traumatic encephalopathy. Okay. So good. So good. Thank you. I practice. We're just going to call it CTE for the purposes of this episode. I can't say that again. (laughs) CTE concerns had plagued high energy contact sports such as football and hockey since the 2000s, but 
This research posed a turning point in the fight to legitimize the disease to leagues and organizations like the NHL. So CTE is a neurodegenerative disease linked to repeated head trauma, and it manifests in tiny lesions of tau, which is a protein in the brain, and that protein kills the surrounding area. So it's literally killing parts of your brain. While both concussions and football are like the colloquial hallmarks of CTE, I think a lot of us think of NFL players, the disease has been found across a broad range of athletes and sports, not even just high contact sports, um, and a variety of head-related injuries, and the NHL is no exception. So you can actually develop CTE from a car crash or so other types of head trauma, whiplash injuries, they all kind of fall under the same umbrella. However, Unlike football, which has formally recognized the existence of CTE, the NHL has yet to acknowledge the risks it poses to their players, despite the tragic and irrefutable toll it takes on the players who are affected by the disease and their family members. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of really, really tragic stories that are attached to CTE within the NHL, but here's just sort of an overview so Rick Martin was the first NHL player to be diagnosed with CTE when his brain was posthumously analyzed after his passing in 2011 from a heart attack. I should also note here that at this point in time with the medical advances that we have, CTE can only be confirmed posthumously through analyzing the brain itself after someone's died. You can suspect CTE. I feel like we're getting to a point where we can kind of not quite diagnose it, but we can treat the symptoms of CTE, but it's, you can't unfortunately confirm the existence of it until after someone's yeah. death. So after Martin, three other players were also posthumously diagnosed with CTE after their own tragic deaths and the circumstances of which are suspected to be attributed to CTE. And these players are Derek Bugard, Rick Ripien, and Wade Black. And I know a lot of us are very familiar with these names and stories. Right. And I think that it's important to kind of talk about the fact that it was at the point of June 2011 where the league decided that the game needed to change. And so it's at that point that the Department of Player Safety was born and created. And I think that while they never have formally recognized it, it was almost like their way of band-aiding saying, okay, well, something's wrong and this is kind of our way of working mm -hmm. on it, I guess. Yeah. I mean, people had known about CTE since for decades, right? But it was kind of, 2017 was this kind of big cultural point in our society, I think, where a lot of just us, and I say us as in not NHL players, kind of understood what this was and what mm -hmm. was happening. But the effects of CTE had been plaguing the NHL and NHL players far before 2017 in that landmark case ever existed. So unfortunately, by 2013, the number of former NHLers diagnosed with CTE was only increasing. And in response to the rise in awareness of CTE and the CTE-related deaths of former NHL players, a class action lawsuit was filed by 10 former players regarding the NHL's lack of response to head injuries in relation to their link to CTE. And it was also in 2013 when Dr. Michael Cusimano, hopefully I'm saying that correctly, um, a neurosurgeon from Toronto's St. Michael's Hospital completed a study and suggested that Rule 48 actually didn't significantly lower concussion rates at all in the NHL. So kind of suggesting that the rule is useless and those suspensions probably didn't do much to help. 
By 2018, the class action lawsuit against the NHL had increased to 140 former NHLers, ending that same year in a proposed settlement between the NHL and the players. Even with the class action lawsuit and increase in current and former NHL players, player agents and members of the hockey community advocating for awareness and understanding of CTE, the NHL still refuses to accept that it is a part of hockey, which despite being insensitive and extremely invalidating to players who are suspected of suffering from CTE and family members who have lost someone to CTE, it also poses a huge risk, right? Until the NHL recognizes the existence and reality of living with CTE, they can't work to prevent or treat it. And honestly, if I might interject my own voice here, which is basically the whole episode, that's one of the reasons why I think, and this is speculation, the NHL kind of refuses to formally acknowledge it because they know that they are not legally obligated to provide current and former players adequate protections and or support and resources in dealing with CTE. And it would also kind of have to involve them saying, hey, we're aware that we're willing to make money off permanently brain damaging you and we're cool with that. And that's basically what they're saying by saying nothing. Totally. And it gets into a really, really complicated situation when we're talking about how there's gradations to CTE. And so you can have some people who are affected, such as Rick Martin, who were totally like, quote unquote, asymptomatic. There are gradations to CTE. Some people affected, such as Rick Martin, can be, quote unquote, asymptomatic. But others are much less lucky. Symptoms can include memory loss, impaired judgment and impulse control, confusion, aggression, depression, suicidality, and even eventual Parkinson's disease and or dementia. And again, at this point, it can only be diagnosed after death by physically analyzing the brain, but all of these are living experiences that so many people with CTE or suspected CTE struggle with daily and because there's gradations to CTE, and that every single NHL player has around the same risk of developing CTE because they're in the same kind of experiences and situations, kind of anyone can have CTE or be developing CTE as we speak, which is a very, very scary reality of this sport and of CTE. And so for the players who are living with those symptoms, the fear and pain is irrefutable. That is a lived experience. And just one player passing away from suspected CTE was one too many. And so how do we protect the living and how do we protect these players? Mm -hmm. For one, while concussion awareness has increased exponentially in the NHL since Sidney Crosby's battle with concussion symptoms in 2011, and there was an update to spotter protocol in 2016, there's still so much more to be learned in concussion treatment, both like medically, but within the NHL. I'll throw mm-hmm. them a bone. They've done a lot since 2011, and those are admirable, but there's always more you can do. So, and having in arena and centralized spotters is fantastic. Just in this past season, again, we've seen a, a great, kind of focus on concussion protocol of concussion spotters pulling guys, even if they didn't seem to get their bell rung too hard just for protocol and they're coming back on the bench. That's great. Um, But again, teams and players can always receive more training and identifying early concussion symptoms. And for me, 
I think a lot of that actually has to do with this relationship between players and their organizations. And I think in past episodes, we've touched on this quote unquote, like culture of pain in the NHL, but we really need to give players the voice to advocate for themselves in this situation and feel safe in doing so. And so they feel empowered to say, you know what? I'm not feeling that great. I think I need to kind of sit for a second. I think I need a minute. Right now in the NHL, I'm not so positive that there, that's an environment in which players can feel empowered to do that because of this sort of culture of pain, this culture of silence, this sort of expectation that you are only as valuable as long as your body is working. And mm-hmm. so if you have to sit because of an injury or you don't feel well, what does that mean for you and your value to the team and as a player and your career? Yeah, and I love that you brought this up because I do think that the kind of toxic, maybe be a man, get back on the ice energy. I think it's a lot bigger than the league itself. I do think it's a culture issue. And I think that when you look at it on an NHL standard and on an NHL level, you can see that it's actually causing injury to people. And in some unfortunate cases, death. And so it's a really important conversation to have to say, you know, does that attitude correlate with CTE? Because in my opinion, I would say yes. Totally. And I think it's, again, I always, always urge everyone to remember that these players are people, but just in my experiences of, of meeting NHL players and knowing the Sharks and kind of being in practices and games and sort of getting to know these people, it, it adds another layer of reality where you're like, that is a person who I have, I've had a conversation with, I've had a personal connection with, you know, you know, their family, like it, it really does hurt to know that these people don't always feel empowered to advocate for themselves. And there isn't necessarily someone kind of looking out for them who is able to even give them a voice in these sorts of situations. CTE really is a concern for a lot of these players and not knowing if they are actively developing it if they have it currently, if mood shifts and changes in their mentality can be chalked up to CTE, not having adequate support or resources or even education about it in the NHL is to a huge detriment to these players' mental and physical and emotional health. And I don't think that's something that gets talked about often enough. And CTE is honestly a conversation I don't see being had all that often, which is really why we also wanted to talk about it today is because giving voice to these sort of pressing issues that sort of lie underneath the experience of hockey and within hockey culture is really, really important because at the end of the day, these are real people and real families that we're talking about. So I think in terms of the future, we all want the same goal and that's to keep the players safe. And for some reason in the long run, to me, that looks like it's going to end up being a total ban on head contact because honestly, a minor penalty doesn't seem like enough. And I really think that one day, like we will land in a stricter zero tolerance policy type of place, but I don't see how doing anything less is going to keep people safe. And I think until then, it feels like we're going to continue to take baby steps towards that spot. And in the process, unfortunately, I do think it will lead to players continuing to get injured. And in some cases, big injured. And so 
I really think that it's going to come down to the league stepping in and taking accountability and actively working to keep these players safe versus adding a busted rule change or something. I agree. I think at the end of the day, this is a league issue. League-wide, but also the solution rests in the hands of the NHL as an organization and a business entity itself. So Gary Bettman, Bill Daly, we're looking at you and other leaders within the organization, right? Until the NHL formally recognizes CTE, they can't and they don't have to provide adequate resources and support to current and former players for concussion and whiplash injuries and the unfortunate effects of Maybe it's CDE, maybe it's not. But regardless, there really isn't any sort of basis in anything for what they provide, right? And that's a big problem. Not only does it affect their careers, but it has lasting and devastating effects on their personal lives and their physical, emotional, and mental health. And if there's one thing I want everyone to take away from these podcast episodes, and I've said it three times this episode alone, but it's that players are just people. And at the end of the day, there are people who aren't protected by their employer, which in this case is the NHL, in a lot of key ways. And that's not okay. And the NHL's refusal to accept that CTE is an unfortunate reality of the sport is just another way the person is valued less than the player. If you want to get in touch with us, all contact information will be listed in the description box of the episode. You can shoot us an email, follow us on Instagram and Twitter, and find us on Fear the Fin at SB Nation.